Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Jesus has some awesome stuff cooking for us in this parable. I'm really excited to dive in. Uh, quick word of warning, we're going to start moving pretty quick. We're going to like start at a run, and we slow to more of an amble as we get toward the end. But for me, it always helps to hear the gospel reread again, so that's where I want to start. Uh, so if you want to follow along with me, feel free to open up a Bible, your phone, whatever. We're in Luke chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 6, where we have the parable starting here. And we're just going to go through, refresh our memories about what we just heard Jordan read uh, and uh, see, see what we can take away. So, verse 6, and he, Jesus, told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. We can stop right there. So, man has a fig tree. Figs really commonly cultivated in the Middle East in Jesus' time. We have a lot of historical evidence pointing to this as well, uh, even archaeological evidence pointing to the fact that, that figs were cultivated as much as 10,000 years before Christ. But most interestingly, we have biblical evidence that figs were there in the beginning, right? In Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve covered themselves up in their shame with what? With fig leaves, right? So we know figs were around. Um, the fig was planted in a vineyard, which might strike you as odd, but it was actually a pretty common practice, like co-locating figs and vines together. Um, so it was a common practice physically, but also in Scripture, we find figs and vines co-located together in a lot of different places. And, and traditionally, they are meant to symbolize Israel uh, and uh, maybe more generally sometimes symbolizing prosperity. Um, we see a lot of examples of this in Scripture, just to hit on a couple in Deuteronomy 7. Figs and vines are two of the seven species of food that God specifically says will be in the promised land. Uh, in Hosea 9, there's this passage, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. In Micah 4, there's this passage about peace where it says, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. And we see that refrain actually in several places in scripture, every man under his own vine and fig tree. Um, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I didn't actually recognize this as being from Scripture, but rather from the musical Hamilton, where it is also referenced. Uh, some of you can relate to that. I'm here today to say it definitely came from Scripture. There, there is some scholarly debate around when Micah was authored, but scholars do agree Micah was authored before Hamilton. So just to put, put that to rest. Uh, so, the man doesn't find fruit, and verse 7, he said to the vine dresser, basically a gardener who's there, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, I've found none, cut it down, why should it use up the ground? So a few more things about figs. Generally, within three or four years, um, most figs will bear fruit. Uh, so it's not an unreasonable expectation that this vineyard owner would think that after three years, this fig tree would have something to show for itself. Um, also, growing figs is not exactly rocket science either. You can actually grow a fig just by sticking a stem in the ground, and under the right circumstances, under the right conditions, it, it will grow and bear fruit. It doesn't require any grafting or seeds or anything like that. So he says, well, cut it down. Why should it use up this good soil that's meant to nourish my vines if it's not doing anything? And then in verse 8, he, the vine dresser now, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
So he says, let it alone. So this phrase in the Greek, I just want to call out, it's, it's aphiomi is the word that's used here. This is important. We're going to come back to it later, so I just want you to log that in the back of your mind. He says, aphiomi, let it alone uh, until I can tend to the roots of this tree by fertilizing them, right? Remember, it's pretty easy to grow the fig trees, so uh, the fact that the vine dresser is going to these lengths to care for the fig tree shows some sort of special treatment. The vine dresser is really invested in making sure this tree is going to flourish. Um, so this leads us um, pretty naturally to um, one way that we can interpret this parable, which is a pretty common, perhaps the most common way of interpreting it, which is Jesus as the vineyard owner speaking to Israel as the fig tree, warning them to uh, repent and bear fruit or they will be cut down. Um, this is totally valid. It's, it's in line with a lot of the broader themes that we hear about in Luke. Uh, Deacon Cindy last week mentioned uh, how Jesus was grieving for Jerusalem. There's, there's a lot of this pattern of Jesus issuing warnings to Israel, warnings to Jerusalem to turn. And it ultimately turns out to be pretty prophetic. Uh, I mean, ultimately, Israel does not bear fruit. And uh, only a few decades later, in AD 70, uh, the temple is destroyed. So... Um, I think the ramifications here, though, are a little bit wider than just Israel. Jesus is too good of a teacher to let us off the hook like that. Um, so I want to zoom out from the parable a little bit, and let's take a look at the chunk of text that leads up to it, which we also heard Jordan read, and see how that can inf inform our reading a little more here and help us to understand just how expansive the implications are here. So back to verse 1. Uh, those of you who are on the fence about coming to church today will be really excited to see that the header in the ESV here says repent or perish, which I'm sure is exactly what you were hoping to hear a sermon about today. Um, so let's read verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So some people come to Jesus with this story about this current event, these Galileans who were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice, and when they get to the altar to actually offer their sacrifice, Pilate has them killed, slaughtered, and we get this gross kind of detail about their blood mingling with the blood of their sacrifices. So this is like some suffering these people are experiencing at the hand of man. And then Jesus gives his own example of, of another event that happened, this tower that fell and tragically crushed some people, uh, kind of more of a natural disaster that happens. And he uses both of these examples together uh, to challenge his listeners, actually really to rebuke them for operating under this assumption that you can somehow attribute the circumstances in your life to how much or how little you have sinned. Now, this, this was a common way of thinking in Jesus' time. We have several examples of this in Scripture, like in John 9, the healing of the blind man. The disciples say to Jesus, well, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like, someone must have messed up somewhere along the lines. And it's easy for us to dismiss this as some sort of primitive theology, but we totally do the same thing today. Like, we, we haven't learned. There, there are a lot of examples of this. Um, you know, one that comes to mind is a, a prominent evangelical media figure who has a tendency to come out anytime there's been some big disaster and, and point out that probably the victims had sinned and this is punishment from God. 
for what happened to them. We saw this. He said this about the, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 or Hurricane Katrina or the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. In each of these cases, it was like, oh, well, they, they did something wrong. That's why this happened to them. That's explanation. But I think this surfaces in more subtle ways for us, too. Um, as many of you know, Lisa and I lived uh, in Los Angeles in our 20s, and Los Angeles is widely regarded as the gang capital of the world. Uh, one of our friends, Danny, from church, um, ran a ministry, still runs a ministry, dedicated to discipling gang members in the community. And when Danny's not discipling gang members, one of the things he spends his time doing is visiting memorials and reaching out to families of homies who've been killed as a result of some inter-gang conflict. And these stories are, are just so, so sad. I mean, these are typically young guys who've gotten kind of pulled into, into this lifestyle. They're usually fathers of young children, their husbands, their sons, and they'll be shot in the street, like killed in broad daylight in their own neighborhood. And the crazy thing is that you don't hear about this on the local. Nobody's talking about this in social media because there's this implicit assumption that society has that these guys are just problems that need to be dealt with, not image bearers, right? There's, there's this assumption that if something bad happened to them, well, they probably had it coming for this deviant lifestyle that they're living. It's just bad guys killing bad guys. And I, I like to call this spiritual victim blaming, right? Operating under this assumption, like if something bad happens to you, if you're facing a particular adversity in your life, well, you must have transgressed somehow, right? It's not, it's not because we live in this broken world that desperately needs Jesus. No, 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 no. Like, it's definitely divine retribution against you. But you can flip this around, and I think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. You can flip around this way of thinking, and it's also easy to fall into this trap of thinking, well, my life is going pretty well right now. I'm, I'm not facing any particular adversity, so God must be happy with me. God's happy with me because I'm happy with me, right? And Jesus is speaking out here against this in no uncertain terms. I mean, he says twice, repent or you will likewise perish. That's heavy stuff, <laughs> Jesus is getting at the universality of judgment. It doesn't matter what your life looks like. One day, you will be held to account. So we can see how that expands our interpretation of the parable then, right? Jesus is telling his listeners, telling us that we're all fig trees. This isn't just Israel. We were planted to bear fruit. That's our purpose. That's, that's why we're here. It's what we were created for. So then, what should we do in response? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, repent. And then in the parable, he says, bear fruit. Repent and bear fruit. There's an interesting relationship between these two things because you, you can't really have one without the other. Like, if I want to bear fruit, I can't just will myself into bearing fruit. I can't sin manage my way there into suddenly bearing fruit. It starts with repentance. And if I'm able to repent, a natural byproduct of that is bearing fruit. Okay, so repentance, I guess that begs the question, what, what does repentance look like? What's, what's the meaning? Um, for this, I think it's helpful to actually look literally at the meaning of the word repent that's used in Scripture. We commonly refer to repentance as turning, which we get that from the Hebrew word, but I love the Greek word that's used here in the New Testament. It's metanoia, two parts, meta, which is kind of like to change or to move, at least in this context, and noia, which is to exercise the mind, to think, to comprehend. 
So taken together, repentance is changing your way of thinking. It's shifting your frame of reference. To repent is to think about things in a whole new way. And it's not just saying I'm sorry either. We have uh, a younger member of our household who shall not be named, who has a tendency when uh, they do something to hurt another person to just quickly blurt out, oh, sorry, I won't do it again. And like, blurt that out, and then that's the extent of the repentance. And then they kind of go on their way and assume that things are good, and then very often end up doing that exact same thing again, perhaps moments later. And Lisa and I have been working really hard to teach our kids, like, that's not repentance. Like, sure, you need to be sorry, like, remorseful. That's part of the process of repentance, but it's not actually repentance unless you change your behavior. Repentance requires a turnaround. So we can look for another example of what this process, repenting and bearing fruit, looks like uh, by looking at what John the Baptist was teaching earlier in Luke, back in Luke 3. Um, John has a passage that nicely parallels with this parable uh, where he's exhorting people to repent and bear fruit, and he says, the axe is at the root of the tree, and whichever tree fails to produce fruit will be cut down and burned. Some subtle language there, but I think you get what John the Baptist is getting at, and you can see how that parallels with our parable here. Uh, and, and moments before, so his listeners, who he had called a brood of vipers, somewhat understandably respond by saying, so what should we do? What, what would you have us do? Like, this sounds like bad news, right? Uh, and uh, here's what John the Baptist says. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And then he calls out tax collectors, and he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And to soldiers, he says, don't extort money from people. So John's pointing to these ways that people can use their positions in society to gather up resources for themselves, and he's telling his listeners to set those things aside, to lay down power, as Jordan summarized this in a sermon a few months ago. Laying down power, oh, that's, that's so hard for me. That's such a challenge, right? Like, in what ways am I hoarding power, hoarding influence for myself that I'm being called to actually lay that down in order to truly repent? So, if we pair John's example that we get uh, with this parable, it, it kind of just helps to reinforce how broad this process of repentance and reconciliation actually is, right? If you truly start thinking about things in a whole new way, shifting your thinking, changing your frame of reference, that affects everything about the way you operate, everything. It blows up all your categories, all of your assumptions. This is where the Hebrew word for repent is really helpful to look at, too. That's when we usually translate to turn. The word there is teshuva. And teshuva, it's not just a word to Jews. It's, it's also this very specific prescribed process for repentance and reconciliation, usually with another person. But it also has this connotation as being uh, this way of living, this way of operating in the world. Repentance is, is something that you practice day-to-day. -day. It's a day-to-day -day spiritual discipline. And it's about shifting our thinking to focus on truth. This is also reinforced uh, by what Jesus is saying up, leading up to the parable. He says, unless you repent, unless you repent, he repeats that twice. And when he says re repent there, metanoia, each time in the Greek, it's actually a different tense of that verb. And one time implies this once and for all repentance. It has a sense of finality to it. But then the other time, it implies this continuing, 
ongoing repentance. So repentance is both a one-time event that affects the trajectory of our entire lives while also being a day-to-day practice of refocusing our thinking on truth. Um, I went down an internet rabbit hole the other day. Probably has never happened to you. Uh, And I found this website that actually exists, and it's so delightful. It's called allaboutfigs.com. Um, it is exactly what you're picturing in your head right now. Someone compiled a massive amount of articles just about fig trees. Uh, and they had this article about how the process by which figs maximize their fruit production. And there's this quote that caught my attention. I think we have it on a slide here. It says, basically, if a fig tree is focused on producing fruit, it'll keep its production for many more years. But once a fig tree starts producing a bad crop, starts to reject it, or even not grow figs at all on some branches, that's when it starts growing wild. It'll focus more and more on its own growth instead of fruiting. That's so true for us too, isn't it? Like, if we're focused on living a life of continued repentance, then it becomes easier and easier, natural, to bear fruit. But as soon as we stray from that, if we turn from the one thing we were planted to do and instead start turning inward, focusing on ourselves, then we start to grow wild. And it makes it even harder to return to a life of fruitfulness. So, we're talking a lot about judgment and repentance, some heavy topics, but this is the gospel, the good news, right? So maybe we're wondering, okay, what's, let's get to the good part. Where's the, where's the good news in all of this? And for that, that's where I want to go back to this word that I talked about at the very beginning when the vine dresser says, let it alone, a fiamy. See, a fiamy can be translated as to let it be or to let it alone. It can also be translated as to give up a debt or perhaps most interestingly, Uh, Most places in the New Testament, it's translated as to forgive. And you you see how that affects how we can interpret this parable. That points to another way we can read this, and and that's God the Father as the vineyard owner and God the Son, Jesus, as the vine dresser, stepping in on behalf of us, the fig trees, to facilitate our uh, bearing fruit. to to call for repentance for us to give us more time so that Jesus can tend to our roots so that we can bear fruit. And the root of that word ephemi also implies releasing a debt, like I mentioned. It's associated with with the year of Jubilee when debts were traditionally canceled. Jordan preached about this a while ago too. So you see what that does to the parable now? Like if we read the parable in that light, this, yeah, this is definitely a parable about judgment, but it's also a parable about God's radical grace. He doesn't have to give us more time, but he does. And this is also an interesting contrast to to the other accounts of barren fig trees that we read about elsewhere in the gospel. Luke is the only place where we get this uh, parable of the barren fig tree. We don't read it in Matthew and Mark uh, or in John. Uh, But in Matthew and Mark, there there are two different accounts of barren fig trees, and it's Jesus cursing the fig tree. And the interesting contrast here with the parable is that there's this implication that, that the tree is not cursed. There's still an understanding that the the tree is capable of producing fruit. Not all hope is lost. This, This underscores what we read in John 12, that Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. And that that psalm we heard read this morning, Psalm 103, has some beautiful passages that reinforce this, right? It talks about the Lord being merciful and gracious and slow to anger and compassionate. Multiple times, it talks about God's steadfast love. So it's a parable not only about judgment or about repentance, but about grace. 
And there's a link between repentance and grace, just like there's a link between bearing fruit and repentance, right? In order to bear fruit, you need to repent. But how do you get yourself into a posture of repentance? Well, this, this is it, forgiveness, grace, a fiamy, right? It's allowing Jesus to step in and tend to your roots. It's seeing this wild offer that he's making to, to give you more time to cancel your debts despite your, despite our complete and utter failure to actually produce fruit in a meaningful way. In Romans 2, 4, we read that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. His kindness, not his threats. Otherwise, the gospel is not good news. It's like a hostage situation. So that's how we turn. That's how we think about our life in a whole new way. We open our eyes and our hearts to his kindness and this grace that he has lavished upon us. But, and there is a but, the axe is still at the root of the tree. And if there's no judgment, well, that's not good news either. Like if we're a people who long for shalom, who long for justice, for the restoration of all things, don't you see how we must, by definition, long for God's judgment? For, for the time when God comes in and puts an end to all evil and all suffering, when he puts up his hand and as N.T. Wright would say, he says, enough, we must long for that. But in the meantime, while we wait for that day, we, we soak ourselves in the reality of this completely undeserved grace, this kingdom that Jesus has ushered in, this divine conspiracy, as Dallas Willard would call it, that is happening right here and right now. So, where does this leave us as we're, we're approaching the halfway point of Lent? Maybe what you need today is a reminder that, that no matter how your life looks, no matter how good things might be going, that judgment is still a reality for you, just like it is for all of us. And you're being called to, to repent, metanoia, to change your thinking, to see things in a whole new way. Where do you need to repent today? Where do you need to lay down power in order to fulfill the purpose, the reason why you're here, why you've been planted, which is to bear fruit? Or maybe the challenge for you is, is accepting that forgiveness in the first place, a fiamy, right? Living into the grace you've been freely given. Maybe what you need this morning is to remember what God has done for you so that you can be in a posture of repentance. Perhaps you're sitting here feeling weighed down by the burden of your own sins or the sins of someone else or the brokenness of this world. Maybe you, you sit up at night worrying, feeling lost and hopeless at all of the suffering that exists today, and maybe what you need is a reminder that you are a forgiven child of God if only you accept his grace, that, that the weight of this broken world the weight of anger and greed and war and poverty and racism, the weight of death, the weight of disease is nothing, nothing compared to the weight of glory placed on you in Jesus Christ. That word, ephemi, that the vine dresser uses, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, ephemi. They know not what they're doing. You see what that means for you? Like, in the beginning, after three days, God creates plants. He creates vegetation, including fig trees, which were bearing fruit, and he calls them good. And at Easter, 
After three days in the ground, fertilizing our roots, the vine dresser rose, having sacrificed everything, having had the weight of judgment placed upon him so that you and I might be able to flourish and bear fruit and be made good again, just like God first intended. So no matter what you need to be reminded of this morning, my prayer for you as you go through the remaining weeks of Lent is that you can look ahead patiently and expectantly and humbly toward Easter. And as you're dealing with the burdens of the here and now, living in this tension between the already and the not yet, may you lift your eyes to the cross and may it serve as a reminder that you are a fig tree that was planted here to bear fruit to be rooted in Christ. So allow him to tend to your roots. Allow him to tend to your roots so that you can repent, so that you can bear fruit and begin to see the world in a whole new way, as it really is, as God meant it to be. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.